Hello, and welcome to another episode of Using Our Library Voices. Just one more way the Harris County Public Library is serving our customers from within and outside our walls. My name is Sedina Shaver. I'm an assistant branch manager in youth services at the Barbara Bush branch in Cypress Creek. I will be your host for this month, and this month we're celebrating the science fiction genre. For those in the know, from Whovians to Trekkies and everyone in between, January 2nd is National Science Fiction Day. While discussing our favorite contenders in the genre, podcast contributor Logan Tuttle mentioned one of their favorite titles is William Gibson's Neuromancer. And wouldn't you know it, I just so happened to know the illustrator who reimagined the cover the year it was republished in honor of its sweep of sci-fi awards. That's right, the trifecta, Philip K. Dick, Hugo, and Nebula. If you're a geek of any caliber, you've seen his work before, although you may not know his name. Please join me as I chat with my good friend and artistic phenom, Rick Barry. My name is Sadina Shaver, and I am the assistant branch manager of the Barbara Bush Branch Library in Cypress Creek with Harris County Public Libraries, and I am being joined here with my good friend, Rick Barry. I'm not Jimmy Carter. <laughs> no, you're not. Okay. <laughs> Do I have to say something about myself? Yeah, tell us about who you are, just a little bit, at least about Neuromancer. We can talk about that if you like. I mean, that doesn't have to be about me then. Well, no, actually it does. But, it it kind of uh, has to be about you. <laughs> there's no getting out of that, I suppose. I will tell you a story I have told often enough that maybe I don't have to think too much to say this. This is back in the early 80s, I think probably 1983. This is back when we did art by dropping art off or picking it up. So I'm either picking up a painting or dropping off a painting. I don't know which. And I'm with my then biggest client, Berkeley Books. And Berkeley Books has this really charming, or did then, charming custom of when they've had a really bad day up in editorial, they pick some editor's office and they all gather there at the end of the day and order up magnums of champagne <laughs> and kill that day. <laughs> and and I happened to have been there. And for some reason, I was in the editor's chair telling horse stories from Montana or God knows what else. It felt had a real campfire feel. So I'm totally sphinxed on champagne and, and willing to tell all these colorful tales from the Rocky Mountains. Eventually, the vice president, who is sitting against the wall on the floor, starts to bring up the subject of Neuromancer, which I've read. And, you know, Neuromancer was a special kind of literary outrage for me. And I'll, I'll return to that later <laughs> because it has to do with Gibson and his thinking, but okay. who's the author of Neuromancer. But I go, uh, why are we talking about Neuromancer? Why does it need a cover? It's already out. And she said, and forgive me, I don't remember her name. She was an awfully nice woman. It's been such a long time now, and I have one foot in the grave, really. <laughs> so um, she said, yeah, but we have received word that it's going to sweep the triple crown of sci-fi awards, which I think was the Campbell, the Nebula, the Hugo, wow. and we're going to do a, a new cover for it. And we were thinking about doing something special. We were thinking about doing computer art, is what they called it back then. I went, computer art? No, mind you, it's the bottle talking now. <laughs> I said, well, I'm from Boston, which is one of the computer capitals of the world. I'll do that cover for you. <laughs> the next day, I get back to Boston, and I think to myself, have I been lying? 
lying to my biggest and best client. I'm just starting out. And did I say I could do some computer art for you? <laughs> and then I tried really hard to remember my lie and the pain of the hangover. And what was the lie about exactly? Boston, yes. Com- computer capital of the, yeah, yeah. Why did I say that? Because it is. It is a computer cap. That, yeah. That's right. That's yeah. why I said that. MIT. <laughs> so, so exactly where does that happen? I did, as you guessed, I went out to MIT, <laughs> to the, the Media Arts Building, and I thought there was something, you know, I'd heard of Muriel Cooper's machine language, no, no, Muriel Cooper's, oh, something or other workshop, but I wound up in a place that was much more powerful. Hmm. So I'm wandering around the halls of this building and all the doors have crypto locks on them, which of course I don't know the codes for. But I do engage a really kindly janitor in a conversation about these doors with their codes and persuade him. And I'm dressed to the nines, I can tell you. I have a folio with eight by tens of my artwork and really trying to look as legit as possible. And somehow I persuade this gentleman to work the crypto lock on what I assume is Muriel Cooper's workshop. And Star Trek, like the door opens and I go in and I'm not at Muriel Cooper's place at all. I'm in the machine group, which is doing defense contracting. They have two big mainframes, Ramtech mainframes, and they have all these spark stations arrayed around the room. Spark Sun spark stations were the thing back then. And on these monitors, on these displays are what now would pass for games, but it's wargaming. So you have these sort of me and bizarro cubistic worlds where peasants are working in fields and being run over by tanks and their barns set on fire. Huh. Sort of rolling across these landscapes. And if you back the camera out, you do actually see the world is a cube. So it's really just like gaming technology in a very primitive sense that yeah. but was very hot shot then. I mean, and it was called Trillium. I think it was a Swiss piece of software. Hmm. So I'm in there and the young MIT hacks look up at me and they go, who are you? And I go, hi, I'm an artist and I have a problem. And I explain to them very frankly that I have been lying and I now need my lies somehow to come true. Could they help? And they're engaged by this and show them my eight by tens. And one of them says, uh, his name is Mike Holly or Mike Hall. And he was in Stuart Brand's MIT Media Arts book. I saw him later on using a force-backed feed controller, haptic controller, in a photo there. But that's the very kid who said, yeah, I can do that for you. And I said, what, what exactly would you be doing for me? He said, well, what we'll do is just take your 8x10s and we'll scan them and we'll false map them and, you know, we'll shoot all sorts of stuff around. And, and then he yelled over at one other guy and he said, wasn't that Albert's program or something? I can break into Albert's program. And he did. So there's this... <laughs> These guys who are in their cutoffs and sneakers and t-shirts working in this workshop, and there I am dressed in like a suit jacket and a tie, <laughs> looking like a knit, but, which of course I am, but they've taken mercy on me. So they scan a bunch of stuff. That's cool. They break for dinner, and I go, oh, great. And I leave too, realizing that, of course, the crypto locks are going to close behind me again. Oh, yeah. And I have to persuade this same guy to let me back in. <laughs> And in about 15 hours' time, I have all these really glossy, amazing things of my artwork. And I send those off to Berkeley Books. And the vice president of Berkeley Books goes, where are the big blocky things? And I went, 
You mean, do you mean pixels? And she said, yeah. How are they going to know it's computer art if there aren't big blocky things? <laughs> and I went, ah, right. It's too slick. You actually can't see them. Be right back. And then I went and did exactly the same raid all over again at Mass Art. And they're much more primitive computer lab. And I mean exactly the same raid. Talking to someone there to let this total, what am I, a marauder? I don't know. <laughs> Into their lab. And what we did is on an Apple 2GS, send my scans over to a Polaroid palette, which had the nifty trick of being able to shift the colors, and you were allowed like 16 colors, mm. onto a piece of film. And my red chalk drawing now was absolutely unrecognizable, but it did have big blocky things. <laughs> really big blocky things. And it was only big blocky things. And I thought to myself, this is not going to work either. So I went to Kinko's, and I had them output a sepachrome of my big blocky things. And I knew my red chalk drawing of Neuromancer was waving in there somewhere, but no one else could see it. And I doped that sepachrome so it would take oil paint. And the oil paint, anachronistically, the elder medium would make the newer medium apprehensible. You could get it. Huh. You could see the image. And that became Neuromancer's cover. And it was, as it turns out, the first digitally generated cover for a novel in the world. Wow. That's quite by accident. Obviously, it's all a drunken accident. <laughs> and with the money from that, and this is an odd sort of little coincidence, with the money from that cover, I went out and bought my first computer, an Atari ST. And I heard that, actually, I've never asked him I should. I heard that Bill Gibson also bought his first computer with the money from Neuromancer. Really? Yeah, he didn't have a computer before that. Huh. And with Atari, with the Atari, I did the next two Gibson covers. And they were also huge adventures, I can tell you, because... <laughs> what anyone was doing back then in digital <laughs> art and me least of all but least of all in as much as i was directly confronting the frontier as it were yeah. and nothing tells you you know nothing like confronting the frontier yeah rick when, you were a there, pioneer i really don't know what i'm doing i don't <laughs> even know where i'm going <laughs> that feeling is pretty dominant how and well not quite dominant the other dominant feeling is that you're snake fascinated with what you're doing mm. and that's a good thing yeah so that was all I guess it came out in 84, and that is the start of that. Huh. You know, I've known you long enough now that I'm not surprised at all that you were able to charm your way into that situation. <laughs> not only Nothing like using your abject helplessness to persuade <laughs> no. people to help you. No. you. I'm so deeply clueless. <laughs> what can you do for no. me? I love that. Wow. Back then... It was a struggle to survive. <laughs> <laughs> survive one's own lying, you know? <laughs> like, what have you been telling people? <laughs> yeah, but you've had bravado but follow-through, which not a lot of people have. I'm sure in that editor's room, completely punked on champagne, I could see it all. I'm sure that I thought I was absolutely telling the truth, that this was something I could do for you <laughs> I could see it plain, you know? And then the next day I was like, who was that masked man? <laughs> my God, what has he done to my life? So but it came off okay. 
it definitely set you up for something amazing. Speaking of, I actually have two questions for you that they were curious about. So it sounds, although it sounds like we've already answered this, did you did you talk to Gibson at all before? <laughs> no, no, but it did broker a relationship with him, obviously. Uh, and it's been a very enriching sort of affiliation, association in, in many ways. I would say there are two authors with whom I have an extraordinary synergistic good fortune. Mm. And one is, is uh, Bill Gibson, obviously, and the other one's Neil Gaiman. Mm. So both of those guys have been, as human beings and as artists, continuous generators of oomph mm. in my own oeuvre and, and my own sense of like, yeah, it's all really worth it to do this work. Because I look at those guys and I go, they're working harder than me. <laughs> so I, I should get my ass in gear and do something. <laughs> But they're the inspiration as well. And as I said earlier, that my, my problem with with Neuromancer, or initially my outrage at it was right. I had read it. And this led me on to certain notions of idea and how idea is generated. Because when I read his book, I thought to myself, uh, arrogantly enough, I suppose, I said, these are my ideas. How the, what the, <laughs> how's this possible? And I called up a good friend of mine, Daryl Anderson, who's a, who's a major, wonderful artist. and wunderkind in digital work but i said i read this book daryl and man i swear to god these are the ideas we've discussed and he said yeah i know hmm. and this figured in a big way later when i give lectures when i when i'm in someone's foolish enough to invite me to come talk at a college or something most of my lectures sort of devolve or evolve depending on how you look at it what you've come there for into sort of discussions of brain science hmm. how creativity actually is generated in the brain what what's going on and i mean really hardcore mm. like what the cells are doing but in a in a broader way the notion that gibson had arrived at these and far more articulately and more beautifully than ever i could have done these ideas i went so at this time there's no connection between me and bill gibson I'm like how is this here and there at the same time mm. How is it here in my life and also in this book that are derived from someone else somewhere else? And I began to think about idea in an entirely different way. Now, this is probably less revelatory now because I think others have talked about it. But back then, it was kind of new. And I said to myself, maybe this whole notion of an artist getting an idea or an author getting an idea, we've got it all wrong. The geometry is wrong. It's that ideas are huge. And everyone's heard the phrase, an idea whose time has come, but have you really thought about it? And I think the truth is that ideas are bigger than people. And so I would use a, a sort of a sports physical metaphor to say, idea is a wave and you're the surfer. And you notice that someone else down the pipe is also on the same wave. You don't know that person, but they are surfing the same wave. It has swept up these two individuals, and they are both writing this idea. The idea's time has come. We've seen situations where an idea's time had not come. Some unfortunate person got it ahead of everyone else, and they were castigated and mm. run out of the village. Yeah, you know, because no one else could could read it. Just this one sensitive say, and it 
overwhelm their life. It still can overwhelm your life. I mean, even if you have a few adherents or others who are catching on to it, there is a, and this leads on to another thing, there, there can be a problem with being ahead of your time or too far out in front. And it kind of sounds cool to be ahead of your time or far out in front, but actually it's an incredibly lonely position in life. And since we're social creatures, that grinds on you. It really grinds on you. And I would say to those who find themselves in that position, be patient and find some support. Even coffee house friends who say, I'm listening to you, I'm getting you. Because when you're really on fire with new ideas, the ideas are large and they'll just burn your circuits out mm-hmm. if you don't have some. That was a bit of a ramble, I'm sorry. But no. I, I, think, I think it sort of connects. No, that was it. Well, in that wrap up, that last sentence was perfect because we're talking about Neuromancer, digital art, sci fi day in January 2nd. And to say that it would burn your circuits out, like what a perfect, <laughs> succinct way that you. I, yeah. I assume now that you tripped into it, but like it was beautiful. I love that. Brain science and circuitry. Yeah, and consciousness altogether has been a big pursuit. I needed certain things to be explained Mm. uh, for me. I've never taken art. Uh, I have no formal training at all. And at some point, I needed to understand why it was I was able to do what I did, because I I really couldn't quite accept the idea of just simply being self-taught, though that, of course, is in some sense what I am. Right. are any of us really? I mean, when you think about it, you rely on various cultural constructs, which mm-hmm. are collaborative in nature because they're cultural. Language. What kind of thoughts could you think if you were a brain stuck in a black box for 20 years and they pulled it out and asked it a question? What could you hope to even have there in the way of consciousness? Probably nothing we would recognize if it even was consciousness. Language is this fantastic cultural construct which allows us to literally share and read each other's minds. Mm. Astonishing that we do this. Art, similarly, I don't draw as if I'm dragging a stick through beach sand in some primordial past. I draw in a very sophisticated way. Where'd that come from? Mm. And I began to look at collaborative constructs in my life where um, going all the way back to, to playground activities, children making up things playing pretend and building sort of new ideas, you know, homes and houses in their minds and in the air around themselves and enacting huh. roles and testing them and, and laughing and giggling all through it too, because there, mm-hmm. there has to be a reward for those constructs as well. There has to be a joy in making mm-hmm. that sort of supercharges learning. In art, I had the good fortune to hang out with a bunch of similar high school dropouts to myself in as mm-hmm. much as and I was. I mean, at 17, I, I left home. This back during Vietnam. There were a lot of things that worked back then, and I just didn't know how long. I didn't know how long I had. Mm. I already had acquaintances who had gone to Vietnam and not come back, and they mm. were just a year older. So I felt urgent about life, and so did these other guys. And we were doing underground comics and, and things together. And, and the great thing about comics is that they encourage collaboration. I'll pencil, you ink. No, all right. Uh, you pencil, I'll ink. Yeah. And we would generate these things. I, re- I remember standing with Daryl looking at a drawing and thinking, wow, this drawing is, it's really, you know, it was inked. It was this beautiful little thing. And I said, this is really, really good. You know, and in an adolescent dumbfoundedness, you, you have, you struggle to communicate in those moments. And eventually I sort of said, well, you know, man, I guess, you know, it's you. And he turned to me and he said, I was thinking it was you. 
Oh. And I kind of thought, huh, what's that? And both of us were always better afterwards. There's some sort of Vulcan mind melt that would take place in doing art together that had propelled our sophistication. We were learning at a pace that those kindergartners learn. Mm. And that was the only thing I could really fall back on as far as how it was I was able to turn pro with absolutely no formal education whatsoever, mm. was that being in this little underground set of fireballs that were doing comics, absurd, foolish comics <laughs> together in the middle of Colorado Springs, which was, I guarantee you is nowhere available when it comes to <laughs> art. You know, I mean, maybe if you want to draw cowboys and Indians for the local, you know, guys who were shilling millionaires who wanted authenticity of the West in their households or homes. I don't know. Those were the galleries back then. And uh, so if you were raised on Kmart book stands and, and 7-Eleven comic stands, you were definitely a nobody as far mm. as art goes. And yet those were our sources. Those That and when Zap Comics came out, we suddenly went, oh, <laughs> we could do this ourselves. What do you know? So that was Colorado Springs. But that particular crucible absolutely produced a super hot chemistry of brain function mm. in all of us. In fact, some of those guys were getting back together. We're going to do we're going to do a fifty year anniversary of a comic we did called Platinum Toad. Oh wow! Yeah, well, we were very psychedelic as well, but we won't go into that. <laughs> but but, uh, but we're so we're going to do that. We're going to pull these guys together, and they're all old hands, and they're extremely good at what they do, and it should be very interesting. Oh, but that'd be awesome! As far as a cognitive <laughs> base for learning and moving forward any arena any of the arts be it music drawing writing whatnot like i said earlier we're, we're built to be social it's, it's the hallmark of the species that we can communicate the way we do if that secret sauce not so secret sauce is in there and you're practicing art that cultural collaborative cognitive basis will supercharge your learning and keep you fresh Let's take a short break from my chat with Rick to see which titles circulated best in Harris County within the sci-fi genre. Caitlin and John are here to discuss your top five. Hello, I'm Caitlin Helbrick. I'm a catalog librarian with the Harris County Public Libraries. And I'm John Harbaugh, branch manager over the West University Library. And today we are bringing you the top five titles checked out with a special focus on science fiction for Science Fiction Day. Number one on the list of top circulating titles in sci-fi for 2022 is Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. Now, Andy Weir is a software engineer turned sci-fi writer that also wrote The Martian. So this one is very similar in tone and style and it's a first-person narrative. Basically, somebody is trying to save the world, but they don't remember how. I've heard this is a great listen on audio. 
Number two on the list is Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. This is told in interconnected narratives across multiple timelines. So some parts of the novel take place on Vancouver Island in the early 1900s, but then there's also some parts of the novel that take place on a moon colony. The author has called it a time travel novel of sorts. It suggests its characters may be living in a simulation, and it asks, would anything about your life change if that were true? This one is the same author who wrote Station Eleven, a very popular post-apocalyptic novel in which most of civilization was wiped out by a pandemic. She writes herself as a character into this novel. Have you read Station Eleven? I have not. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Have you seen the show? Nope. Oh, okay. So when she was writing this one, she was grappling with how people thought she had predicted COVID in Station Eleven? Well, well, well. She can't tell the future, can she? Or a slice of it? (laughs) She started writing this in March of 2020, and it it was a surreal experience for her to be writing science fiction at a time that very much felt like science fiction as well. Is that what this kind of story is about? Yeah, absolutely. So she writes herself as a character in the novel, like you said. Um, She started out just with these short, short snippets of auto fictions that she had wanted to tell these these stories that felt so surreal to her about sexism that she had experienced herself on tour as an author. And then as the pandemic started, she kind of shifted into a more sci-fi narrative as a way to write about parenting during the pandemic. Hmm. Interesting way to start a sci-fi. For number three, we have Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. Uh, the titular Clara is an artificially intelligent robot designed to be a child's companion. And we follow her through her intended lifespan as a machine, from her beginnings on display in a retail shop to her life of servitude as a child's companion, through her kind of deaccession from that home, so to speak. I've actually read this one. The story is told entirely through Clara's narration. I found it a real joy to be in her head. She's very childlike. She's super curious, highly intelligent, but also incredibly naive. Because she knows so little about society or life at all outside of her program, the, the only exposition we ever get is through dialogue that Clara overhears. So there's a lot of ambiguity, a lot of gaps that the reader is left to fill in on their own. AI, really popular right now. And what's really popular too is some of the classics. We have number four and five as Dune and Dune Messiah by Frank Herbert. So movie just came out. No big surprise that this made the list, but it's a fantastic book. I literally don't know anything about Dune. It's like it's on the list of classics that I know I should read and I haven't. And now that it's popular, my inner rebel is like, well, now I can't read it because everyone likes it. Mm -hmm. So this one is like a classic space opera. So it's a struggle on Dune or the struggle on Arrakis, the spice planet. Spice is the thing. It's the MacGuffin. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants control of it. So it, it, it enables intergalactic travel. It is basically the way that it's the thing that signifies oil on Earth. So oh. there's a very big parallelism between commerce and control of Arrakis and the spice and then of Earth and oil. So it, in a way, it's an allegory. A, you know, classic sci-fi takes a problem, multiplies it times 100, and puts it out in the future to see how things play out. So in this situation, you throw in the, you know, people who actually live in the desert, the Fremen, and how, 
you know, kind of like a dances with wolves, but also being able to see both into the future and past at the same time, the Kwisatz Sadarak. Yeah. It, it gets real deep and real nerdy. And if you like that stuff, it's fantastic. Um, the movie's really good. So it's a good representation. I'm just waiting for part two. So those are our five sci-fi hits for the year 2022. Thank you for joining us. And we hope that you keep on reading. May the force be with you. Live long and prosper. Thanks for the break, Caitlin and John. I love hearing about what everyone else is reading. All right. Now that we covered Neuromancer specifically, Rick had some insight into the process of what it's like being an artist that has his influence and work stretched across this vast genre. Without further ado, here is the last half of my talk with Rick. Hi again. Hi. All right. <laughs> it was surprisingly easy given what we went through before. <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, I, I got to tell you, it is sort of a young person's game. I, yeah. You know, there was a time when I was really hot to sort a lot of things out. I mean, hell, we, we worked on making software and things. You know, we, we were the clever kids. In fact, when we were working on uh, Johnny Mnemonic, the film, Robert Longo was the director, the artist Robert Longo. And he came out to... Massachusetts, where we slapped a studio together to do these high-end digital, high-end for then, digital effects, to do the climax of Johnny Mnemonic. And he's out in the alleyway in the dark, and we sort of know he's coming, but we're not sure when, and he shows up from wherever he flew in from, and out in the alleyway behind our studio, we hear someone screaming, Cowboys! <laughs> Cowboys! And I, I lean out to him and Robert? He goes, yeah, let me in. So he comes charging up the stairs. The guy's a ball of energy. I mean, he's just, he's just like rocketing around the studio. The studio is filled with oil paintings as well as computers. It's an interesting mix. And he's just charging around and like, he goes, nobody knows what you guys look like. You know, no one's ever even seen you. It's just your file says Gibson's Cowboys. You guys are doing the voodoo, and I figure since we're using you for this, I, the director, should at least know what you look like. <laughs> so he's come on out and seen the whole rig. It was just hilarious. But back then, I swear, you know, we were still winging it. And, I, and in fact, I would like to think that that's always true about Frontier Edges. Mm-hmm. I mean, even now, even though I can no longer keep up with what all the guys are doing out there, I'm sure there's much of the same sort of wild-ass cowboy joy <laughs> of searching out the frontier. And this is a very peculiar frontier because it only appears as you assay it. Mm. It's an interesting thought. I mean, if you, if you think about it, was the frontier there before you got there? Or did you create it? Or is it both? Huh. Well, I... It often looks like a melting sort of phosphoring edge that's occurring just in front of my feet as I walk. You know, huh. I could be walking totally something totally dark and yet there's this sense of almost prescience this sort sort of shadow of what's about to be this a little bit resembles the argument of whether or not math is something we invented or is it the actual language of the universe right you know does math pre-exist math because the universe is going to generate math in us but there's no way of solving that we don't know we have the sense of occurrence but is that our limitation has this already all occurred? Was it there waiting for us? Or is it becoming right now? Right. Or is it both? 
I kind of like the idea of both. Like you were saying, so you know, it's an easy out. Well, no, but it, it kind of <laughs> goes along with your idea, this concept of big ideas happen, you know, they, they sweep you up like that tidal wave, that wave that you all surf together. Right. And that kind of makes that feel like that's how the frontier acts too, which I really yes. enjoy. I have not pulled those two things together and I should have before. Well, Which I mean, is why I like talking to you. Yeah, I know. I just, ugh, I miss this. Just hanging out with you in the studio and talking about the most obscure concepts. But this is why I knew I had to talk to you for Sci-Fi Day. Because, come oh, on, Oh, there Rick. you go. Yeah. Sci-Fi <laughs> music. That's me. I am a, definitely a true son of science fiction, without a doubt. It isn't that I don't enjoy a wider palette of literature. I do. Mm. But science fiction and fantasy. Mm. I mean, I I used to be slightly biased with respect to those two genres but now i have more difficulty in separating them mm. I, I do love hard science fiction i enjoy it and gibson is sort of hard science fiction but he's also human observation a contemplation on identity mm. what makes us us he writes in a gorgeous fashion and when you get there when you get to that particular point where the contemplation of these things brings you into a, a confrontation of what makes you you? What is identity? You're also where fantasy works. Because I see that in gaming all the time. You know, yeah. what makes you you? What contemplation on the miracle of being? Mm. And what is most human? And if in horror you create horror by subtracting one or two things mm. from that identity and come up with an abomination thereby that's great horror writing yeah it's so close but something's missing it's like a sociopath has something missing mm. and and horror suddenly occurs looks just like a human being but mm. isn't these contemplations of what makes us human seems to be arrived at just as well by either of these paths. So if they have that in common, and that is a fantastic commonality, I have become less prejudicial about mm. it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you one more official question. See if we can... Oh, all right. I mean, I just love talking to you either way, but... What is your favorite cover you've worked on, uh, digital or otherwise? And is there anything that you feel was underrated? Okay. One popped in my head right away without me thinking about it mm. and it's not because i'm convinced of it i'm just as surprised as can be it just popped into my head right away okay okay and i'm sure there are others that if i thought longer could give it a run for its money or even supersede it but the thing because you asked it and it joined to your question instantly i'm gonna go ahead and throw that out there and it's a cover by a novel by judith tarr and it's called queen of the amazons okay and it's very digital. Well, none of my stuff is actually strictly anything. It starts out as a charcoal drawing that I then bring into the computer. And then this is also really like, uh, you, you know those paper dolls that you can cut out outfits for? Oh, yeah. With the, yeah. A different outfit onto each one. Mm -hmm. I kept thinking about that when I was doing this cover. So I did this charcoal drawing, which is kind of a sophisticated, you know, anatomical tour de force, mm. really. And I should talk about how I draw at some point, but <laughs> since I don't use models right. and I don't use references, which is leads us back into deep cognitive territory. How mm. does that happen? But I went to Racinet's 
history of ornament. It's a Dover book. Yeah. It's simply orthographic maps of ornament from the Persian Empire, from Egypt, from you name it, patterns, uh, pottery, textiles, and whatnot. And they're just, it's a big book, you know, it's like, boom, you know, and it's these big flat plates of ornament. Mm -hmm. So I look at those and I just began to scan them and then drive them into the surface of this charcoal drawing with the computer. Hmm. And then, of course, the thing is, how do you make that not look like paper doll cutouts? <laughs> there were interesting visual cognitive tricks that, and also I did this for um, a book called Takedo Road, same exact approach. And I noticed that the eye accepts certain kinds of illusions quite readily. Mm. So even though something was orthographically, flatly pasted into a region of the drawing, if I dodged and burned for shadow inside of that, even though none of the pattern shifted, the eye thought that cloak was rippling. Huh. Absolutely accepted it. Dead took it in. Did not deny it. So drapery and all this sort of stuff, even jewelry. And some of the jewelry I went further, I, I would like sort of distort the parallelogram shift of a surface. But that's very little. Huh. It's, it's still a flat orthographic image just being huh? like this. But by burning and turning things in light and shadow, not changing their contours, not redrawing them, you simply accepted that this this ravishing warrior queen was outfitted in Persian wear, hmm. textiles or what have you. And um, illustration or challenges or any art challenges, really, not just illustration, because AI is going to kill illustration, I'm sure. Hmm. It leads you onto these cognitive questions. How did that work? Why is it, well, I know what I did here, and I'm still seeing this. Hmm. I know exactly what's happened here, and it doesn't make any difference. I still see the illusion. That is why most of my lectures eventually sort of veer towards brain science. How <laughs> does it happen? Which we won't do this evening because that's a long lecture. <laughs> For another time. Yeah. So Judith Tarr's Amazon Queen, I, I think, was uh, four books. Irene Gallo, art director, wonderful human being. So there you, there you are. That, okay. we'll, we'll throw that out there. As a standout, though, I'm already other ones are tumbling into my head, so it wouldn't be fair. Well, anything that you feel was underrated somehow? Underrated. An underrated cover. Well, there was this book called Amazon Queen that I thought was really <laughs> underrated. <laughs> you know, maybe that's why it jumped to the forefront, you know? Is it, it knew that it was this, like, complex work of art that then was underrated. And I don't know that it was underrated. I, I just, I, I, the fact is, I'm a poor reporter on that sort of stuff because I have no idea what my stuff does. That's very true. You're, you're a little I don't, more humble. I don't humble really than you see it again. I don't know. Yeah. What happened? I don't know if there's anything that I want to ask you in particular. I guess is there anything in, about sci-fi that you want to talk about that either artistically or just through experience? Of course, there's, you know, you, you just stick your hand in a hat and come up with a rabbit or a dove or a snake bite <laughs> or any number of things, perhaps an arresting officer. <laughs> but science fiction has a lot on offer. Science fiction asks you and to speculate, and that's why some people have, have called it speculative fiction. But I would go further and say, at least for me, 
science fiction asks me to dream. Mm. And that was not going too far to say that the book saved my life. Mm. Without that secret bloom of dimension that literature provided, I don't know how I would have survived certain passages in my youth. Mm. Some of it was pretty dicey. Yeah. I, I went to 11 different schools before I dropped out of school and left home at 17. So you can kind of figure out that maybe you needed some islands of stability in a life like that, some place you could go. I remember walking one time between my fourth junior high and home. And as I was walking on this red, dusty road, all, all the roads in Colorado are, are red dust if they aren't paved. And thinking to myself, this is the only place where I'm free. Mm. Just this dirt lane between here and there, between the small house and the big house. Junior high, I mean, God, what a paradise in life. <laughs> so, and four of them, four of them. I was so, I was so lucky. So, I mean, all, all the stuff you go through in that situation. Yeah. And I had this sort of stop that I would do. I'd either pick up a comic or I'd walk up the hill to a Kmart and look at the book stands. And there was this secret bloom and dimension, as I say. You know, there was literature, there was art. And the sense of a cage-like experience of life would fall away. Literally, I remember that was the first time, in fact. I was 15 and I was looking at, I think, a Jeff Jones book cover. And it finally dawned on me, I said, where, where are they doing this? And I, eventually I would meet Jeff Jones and we would become friends, and, you know, but I had no idea of that. And I was looking at Jeff Jones' book cover and I said, man, and I looked it up and, you know, you look, it's the first time I looked inside of a book and looked at where it was published. Huh. And I went, oh, New York. This was published in New York. In four years, I would hitchhike from Colorado to New York looking huh. for work. All the way from, I'm a coast-to-coast hitchhiker. <laughs> I've, I've hit both coasts just hitchhiking across this whole nation. But the fact that I saw a doorway, mm. a literal doorway inside of the flap of a book, it is not too much to take a, a concrete metaphor from that. To say, opening a book cover is like walking through a door to someplace else because it literally was yeah. for me oh that on so many levels just really speaks to my heart as a librarian but specifically a children's librarian somebody that like i wish that that experience could be gifted to everyone what it a... can be of course and you yeah. are one of the purveyors thereof but as you know my wife sheila your mm -hmm. friend mm -hmm. works at robin's library and every once in a while, I'll be dropping her off and I say, well, there you are at the Palace of Learning. There you are at the Bastion of Civilization. Mm. And during the COVID era, when they were trying to get delivery of books to people yeah. under such harsh circumstances, they were standing on their heads. They were taking pre-orders and mm. delivering bags of books to the stair steps and doing all kinds of things to make sure that their clients, their adherents or whatever, were getting book supply. And it was hard. It was hard work because they're in one of the most exposed public positions you can imagine. They're working in a library. Yeah. They're literally doing gymnastics 
to keep everyone and themselves safe and still come across with the stuff. Yeah. Because they get it. And so do the people who get it, get it. I hope you enjoyed listening to Rick Barry speak on art, his process, and his experiences working alongside some of the legends of sci-fi. If my hours spent in his studio outside of Boston are any indicator, we could have talked forever. And we nearly did. In celebration of National Science Fiction Day, try and find Rick Barry's works and how he's had a hand in your favorites. You'll be surprised where you find him. Now let's check back in with John as he highlights his new home at the West University branch and this episode's branch profile. Hi everyone, this is Gisela. I'm the youth librarian at West University Branch Library. And I'm John. I'm the branch manager over at the West University Library. And we are your number one library inside the inner loop. Yay! Because we're your only library inside the inner loop. And we've got a bunch of exciting programs going on. I'll let Gisela go first. So, of course, we have our story time. That's every Monday morning at 10 and 10.45. We're at the Scout House on Edlow. It's a family story time, and we have a lot of fun and a lot of bubbles. We also have our craft time on Thursday mornings for toddlers and preschoolers. That's tiny art time. That happens at 10 a.m. We also have more programs for older kids. So we have our monthly STEAM team. So far, we've done such very serious and important topics such as poop and we hope to continue that theme of maturity and seriousness in our steam programming we also have pause for literacy that which is the first saturday of every month we have some very good dogs in our ya section and they are ready to hear your children read to them and you should come meet some very good boys and girls for our adult programs we've got a variety of different things Our constants are our monthly book club, which meets at the Senior Center at 11 o'clock on the first Wednesday of every month. May not be able to make January's meeting, but for February, we're reading Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. We also have a variety of different things coming up, like we're starting a walking club that's going to meet one Friday a month to walk around West U and talk about our favorite books. We're also going to be starting up on the third Thursday of the month, a Star Wars fan club. So for all you Jedi and Sith out there, you can join us for a good discussion about a variety of Star Wars related topics. You can also meet us on the third Monday of the month for Chat and Chain. For anyone who's interested in working on some of your Fibercraft projects and some conversation. We have a lot of fun over here. We really do. So we are looking forward to you joining us down here at the West University Library. Thank you for joining us this month as we came together to share one of our favorite genres. We hope you've enjoyed another episode of Using Our Library Voices, brought to you by the staff of the Harris County Public Library. You can subscribe to our feed wherever you listen to podcasts for more content throughout the year. Or you can find us at hcpl.net forward slash podcast. This episode was produced by Darla Pruitt, hosted by Sedina Shaver, edited by Christian Ornelas, with interviews and segment contributions by Sedina Shaver, John Harbaugh, Caitlin Helberg, and Gisela Parker. With special thanks 
to my good friend and our guest for this episode, who I will never be able to repay, Rick Barry. 